Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. All right, if you've ever been around the circus and you've ever kind of got like the behind-the-scenes tour, you're at a smaller circus where you actually could go and look at the animals, like what are they doing when they're not performing, uh, you've probably encountered the elephants, and it's, it's pretty fascinating. You've got these amazing beasts, largest animals, most powerful animals. They're about six-plus tons, okay? And they are about 10 feet tall, and they're back there, and all they got is this like chain around one of their legs and like a little wooden stake that they're posted in there, and like, Something's wrong with that picture. Because if that elephant wanted to get out of there, it, it's also, I think I'm done with this, and he could haul off, and he could move, and yet he doesn't. And how does that work? I mean, these elephants are so strong, they could, I mean, they could snap that chain, they could pull that peg out, kind of like you and I could snap a toothpick. And yet they've only got this little wooden stake. What's going on with that? How do they, how do, they do that? Well, we found out that elephants, although they not be so smart, they have great memories. And what happens with these baby elephants when they get started? They're only, you know, about 285 pounds. I mean, they're the lightweight, all right? And when they take these baby elephants, they put, that, put a chain on one of their legs right there, and they nail a metal stake into the ground. And that little elephant will just repetitively, you know, just going back and forth, trying to break that chain, trying to break, pull that stake out, and he can't. If that little elephant sees something that he really wants to go after, and he's like, he'll pull even harder, he'll do it to a place where he actually starts making a cut, where it actually, ow, that hurts. And like the rest of us, as soon as he feels like, you know, I've had enough of this pain, I think I'll stop. Some of us more than others understand that principle. He, the little elephant stops. He's like, I can never get past this chain and that stake. And what happens is the elephant grows. Eventually what they do, they replace that metal stake with a little wooden stake. They just pound it in there. And that elephant knows, or at least it thinks it knows, that I can never escape that chain and that stake. And I tell you that because that reminds us of a lot of people that we might know, like maybe starting with ourselves. We believe that we are chained to a past that we simply can't escape. We're like an elephant, like, man, I got experience that tells me that I can't go anywhere, and so I'm staying this way, and I'm stuck. And I cannot break the patterns of the earlier life. But let me ask you, does relationship with the living God, does the gospel really change people's lives, or is this just kind of like a little religious sideshow? People just come, sing some nice songs, get better morals, better way of life, this might do my family some good. Or does Jesus Christ literally change people's lives? And if he does, how does that happen? Well, as we've been making our way through the gospel of Romans, We're at Romans 6. If you want your life changed and revolutionized, you are going to want to make sure that you have a really firm grasp of Romans chapter 6. Let me just remind you of where we've gone. As we've been making our way through this book, the theme of the book of Romans is the transforming power of trusting in Christ and his gospel. And there are six key words that you can break this entire book by. And first one is exaltation. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, talks about the glory of Christ and his gospel. Then beginning in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, you see condemnation. You see that all of humanity is under sin. There is nothing that we can do to free ourselves from it. And that leads us to the third key word, and that is justification. Chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through end of chapter 5, where we just finished off last week, we see the gift of God's righteousness that comes through the gospel. And that leads us to where we're at today, 
chapter 6. Chapter 6 through 8 is a section that we call sanctification. It is the reality of what it means to be set apart to God through his gospel and to know Christ. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are going to deal with the subject of Israel. And you're going to see restoration, how God is going to bring Israel to a place of belief in the Messiah. And what is that going to look like? And then the final chapters, 12 through 16, the ones you're probably most familiar with, are transformation. How God literally develops a lifestyle that is in keeping and that comes from knowing Christ and his gospel. But if you want to know how God changes his people, you're going to want to lock in on Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. He does so, first of all, by identifying us with Christ. Literally, when you and I place our faith and trust in Christ, he gives us a new identity. Now look at this, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul is going to slip back into that pattern of diatribe. It was kind of an ancient teaching practice where you would ask a question and then answer it. It was well-practiced. It was, it was in vogue at the time. And so you see, he asked the question, chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? Apostle Paul, other apostles, Barnabas, as they kind of made their way and traveled to the empire, they're proclaiming the gospel. People were saying, hey, wait a second. If what you're saying is true, that God's grace abounds more than our sin then if we really want to see God glorified and his grace even more more abounding, then you know what we ought to do? We ought to sin all the more. And that's what they were being charged with. And it's, what, it's, what it is, it's called antinomianism. That's a new word for you, antinomos, no law. It's the idea that you don't really have to follow God's law. It doesn't really matter. In fact, antinomian says, I'm saved by faith, therefore... I don't have to be concerned even in the slightest about following God's law. Its commandments have no binding influence on my conscience. And what, how is Paul going to respond to that? He says, look at verse 2, May it never be. This is the strongest Greek idiom for repudiating a statement. It would be like an attorney standing up and saying, Your honor, I object. Absolutely, uh, it's a response of shock. May it never be. Why is that? Well, look what he says in verse 2. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? You see, to go and continue on in sin would be actually to be a denial of our identity in Christ. And kind of what, if you want to understand this, the whole power of being under sin That was absolutely broken when you were united with Jesus Christ, specifically with his death and resurrection. Sin still has a power, but it no longer dictates your life. Because why? You've died to sin. How in the world can you keep still living in it? And you need to understand something about salvation. When you and I come to know Christ, it's not merely a transaction It is a transformation. God literally changes us. It's not merely forensic, legal, that God now declares us right, justification, but it is actual. God literally, actually changes those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And so he says, verse 3, don't you remember, don't you know, verse 3, or do you not know that 
all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, you see that word baptism and immediately think of, oh, this is something to do with water, whether it's being sprinkled upon you, or maybe you're baptized in a lake or something like that. And so that's what he's talking about here. But let's, let me help you understand what he's saying here. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo. It literally means to submerge or immerse. It was used like, for instance, if you were going to dye cloth, you had some white cloth, and you wanted to dye it, let's say, purple, you would literally submerge it or immerse it into the dye, and that cloth would now take on the qualities of that dye. It went from white to purple, okay? And that's what it means, literally to submerge or immerse. You and I, when we placed our faith in Christ, we literally were identified, immersed, submerged, united with Christ. And that's not to say that water baptism isn't important. If you've read the New Testament, it's extremely important. In fact, the pattern is once you have truly believed in Christ, you are to follow that up with a public expression of being baptized. But baptism and water baptism is merely a symbol of a inward reality. In fact, if you focus just on the symbol, then you actually start missing the reality. And we got a lot of Christendom that's in that camp. They're really quick to play that I was baptized card, but the whole idea of personal conversion or truly trust in Christ, well, I was just baptized. I want to go there. What Paul is saying is that you and I, we've been identified with Christ. We've been baptized in him. How in the world could we live in the sin? He says we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. We're identified and we are baptized into his death. His death is our death. That's why we don't just continue to plow on into sin. You know why? We've got a brand new identity, folks. And if you want to really change, if you've come here this morning and you are tired of being like the elephant that's chained to your past and to your sin, you're fed up with it, let me tell you how you change. You've got to receive Christ and believe in him. And you change by focusing on the reality of your new identity in him. I was reading this, uh, of this lady. Her name is Elisa Fitzpatrick. She wrote a book called Because He Loves, How Christ Transforms Our Daily Life. And I want to just read this little excerpt to you. She writes, quote, Just in case you're unaware, identity theft occurs when someone steals your name and other personal information for fraudulent use. Most of us are dismayed by this new cyber age crime, and we wouldn't assume that the theft of another person's identity is acceptable behavior, right? The surprising reality, however, is that Christians are, by definition, people who have someone else's identity. They're called Christians because they've taken the identity of someone else, the Christ. Not only have you been given an identity, that you weren't born with or that you didn't earn the right to use, but you are invited to empty the checking account and use all the benefits of this, that this identity brings. This is so much better than identity theft. It is an identity gift. That's what we have when we come to Christ. We are now identified with him. Do you want life change let me get to it all gets started with identifying with Christ. You have a brand new identity. But wait, it gets even better. Not only if you're going to experience God change, you realize the new identity, but he literally, he infuses us with Christ's life. 
for some of you, this is going to be revolutionary for you. You see, a lot of folks feel like, well, to become a Christian, it's just God's going to forgive you your sins because Jesus kind of dealt with that. And so you got forgiveness of sins, and uh, hopefully you can kind of live the Christian life, or he's going to empower you to, quote-unquote, live the Christian life, however you might define that. But that isn't actually Christianity. Christianity isn't you following a code or even a certain set of scriptures. Christianity, in its essence, is Christ living in you and through you. Not only are you identified with him, you're united with him to the degree that the life of Christ is being manifested in his people. That's what makes you a Christian. And so, for instance, like when Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but what? Anybody know? Christ lives where? He's in heaven. No, he's in me. He literally takes up residency in your life through the working of the Holy Spirit. You not only have a new identity, you're now infused with his life. And that's why Paul is going on here in verse 4. Let's talk about this, he says. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. And this is absolutely fascinating. But one of the great mysterious mysterious miracles is that it's like we are transported back in time 2,000 years ago that we literally are identified with Christ in his death. That act that Christ, the perfect righteous son of God, when he dies on the cross and literally pays the penalty for our sin, he bears our sins in in his body on the cross, that is actually our death because he dies in our place and we are literally identified with him. And at the same time, it is our faith in him that when he was raised from the grave, he came back from the dead, his resurrected life is what literally makes us a new creature in Christ. We're no longer the same. We are absolutely different. In fact, he goes on to talk about that, that we walk in the what, verse 4? The newness of life. The old way is past. We are now a new creature in Christ, and we now walk in the newness. It's a way of life in the newness of life. He says, verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self, who we once were in Adam, remember what we talked about last week? our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. You're a completely new person if you have truly put your trust and faith in Christ. Now, what happens, uh, people, people say this. They say, well, You become a Christian, and you've got the old nature, but then you believe in Jesus, and so you have a new nature. And so you've got the old nature, new nature, and you're kind of combined. And and people use, like, this illustration. It's kind of like you got this bad dog, and you got this good dog. And what's really manifested in your life is the dog that you feed, right? And that all sounds good. Like, oh, yeah, that's good. I think I might write that down. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. It's not true. You don't have two natures. You have one. 
You are a new creature. You have a new nature because you're now united with Christ. Now, you still have a propensity to sin. There is within our fallenness and our humanness, there is still a desire and the ability to sin, but you're a new creature in Christ. And if you're thinking like, well, that's not such a big deal, Grant. Actually, one of the early Christian heresies that developed was this idea of two natures. And you had these people called the Gnostics, okay? Gnosticism. They were in the know. They had secret knowledge. And what they taught was that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Sin all you want. The body is going to go away. It's fine. It's just what's in your heart and your spiritual thoughts. That's all that matters because that's all that survives. And so you had these people that were supposedly Christians that were living like the devil, okay? And they were doing all sorts of, they may as well sin, you know? The whole idea that God's glory is increased, the more we sin. And Paul says, absolutely not. Our identity with Christ changes that, and we have literally been infused with his life. We are now united with him. And you need to understand that your body, your body isn't bad. For some of you, this is kind of like new information. You kind of think like, ugh, my body is just bad, and so I just can't wait to be freed from it, and then I'm just going to enjoy heaven and being in God's presence. Actually, your body is good. It was created by God for his glory to actually do good. In fact, remember in Romans chapter 12, some of you have memorized this verse, he, he actually says that we are to present our, what? Bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. If our bodies are bad, how is it that we're going to present them a sacrifice? What we want to do is we want to use our bodies for good. And because we're in Christ, that is truly possible. That's what we're designed for. You might actually want to even take care of your body because it's a means by which we glorify God and you only get one in this life. Now, in this life, you and I may struggle with some sin. Uh, we're certainly going to be tempted. One day we're going to be emancipated from our body. We will be in the presence of Christ. We will never face temptation, nor will we ever sin again. In fact, we'll be given bodies that will be able to endure, that are fit for eternity, that are just like Jesus Christ in his resurrection form. But you need to understand that in this life, you're a new creature, but you'll still face that inward propensity to want to sin. It's kind of like this. Uh, I'll give you a helpful illustration. A guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a famous 20th century pastor. He was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London uh, for 30 years. And he gave this illustration here. He said, I want you to imagine being in one of our British farm fields in this country scene. And I want you to, you know, imagine yourself in these fields. And, how they, and you can see this. Here's a picture of them. They have these like fields and they're all parsed out by all these high rock walls and there's like little pathways and roadways between them. And it's like you were born into one of these fields that was dominated and owned by Satan. And you couldn't help but to be under sin. And even at times you wanted to try to escape and get over the wall, you simply couldn't because you were in that field. But then God in his amazing, marvelous grace He actually takes you out of the field of Satan and he transfers you across the the road into an adjacent field where you're now in Christ and under his domain and in his kingdom where the love and the glory and the righteousness of Christ reign. But he says, but while you're in the new field, you still can hear the voice of Satan calling out to you from the field that you once were emancipated from. And it still calls out to you. In fact, if you listen to it, 
you can obey it, even though you've now been transferred and put in the kingdom of the beloved son. And that's kind of how it works. And you really, what you want to do is you want to get as far away from where you once were as you can. And we have been infused with the life of Christ. And he goes on to reinforce that in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we, also, we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. We're identified with him who's died to sin and risen again. And then he says this statement. This is a powerful statement in verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Wait a second here. How is that possible? How is it that Christ could, he died to sin once for all? I mean, isn't Jesus without sin? Isn't he perfect? If he's, if he's without sin and he's perfect, then how is it that he could die to sin? Well, let me tell you in two ways that takes place. He died to sin, first of all, in regard to sin's penalty. He met its legal demands that are upon the sinner. The wages of sin is what? Death. And that legal requirement has been satisfied and that the perfect Son of God literally died in our place. That means that he has broken the mastery of death and sin in the life of the believer. But there's a second way in which he died to sin, and that is in regards to sin's power. He forever broke the power of sin. You and I don't have to live under the dominion of sin because we've been freed from it because we're united with Christ. We have been freed once by the once for all death of Christ. And this is a pretty significant statement. You might want to make a little mark by it because it actually stands in opposition to the doctrine and practice of the kind of the so-called perpetual sacrifice of the, of the death of Christ that is celebrated Every single time there is a mass in a Roman Catholic church, there is the recreation of the death of Christ. And it's literally, they believe, he dies over and over and over again. And I know this from firsthand experience. I have a Catholic background. This is something that is practiced every single time there is a mass. There is a recreation of the death of Christ. When the people started reading their Bibles... They came to verse 10, and they saw for the death he died to sin, what? Once for all. And the whole idea of having a, a crucified Jesus who's dead on a cross, they're like, no, that cross ought to be empty. In fact, with the Protestant Reformation, the dead Jesus gets off the cross because he, in fact, is indeed alive. And that's why we have life in Christ. And he lives to the glory of God. In fact, he's living in his people, and God is glorified when his people are united with him. I want you to imagine for an instance, if you're a, a guy here, and uh, this is just strictly imagination, okay? But let's say uh, prior to you getting married, if you got married, that you were a slob, okay? And we're just imagining. This is all very hypothetical, because of course this probably isn't true. But just imagine, you know how it was, you know, you got piles of clothes everywhere. You got dirty dishes that are just kind of mounding up in the, in the kitchen, right? Um, for instance, uh, the bathroom. Well, let's not even go there. 
I, I remember when I was working uh, in the insurance world, one of my coworkers, we were kind of talking about bachelor days, all right, and I was living some of mine. And uh, apparently with the guys that he was living with, they would gather in the TV room and they'd all sit there. And if they could smell the bathroom, they would decide to clean it. Otherwise, they just left it, okay? I mean, it's bad. You got stuff growing everywhere that it should never be, right? But, right? but then an amazing miracle takes place that somehow you actually get married. Your family's rejoicing. There is new hope and there is new life for you because now you're married and you marry this gal and all of a sudden she brings about all sorts of changes in your life. I mean, your clothes, they're clean. They don't look like they've been run through a lawnmower, okay? You, all of a sudden the, the kitchen is nice. You can find things for the first time in your life. It's, it is awesome. It is pleasant. It is order. It's life the way it was meant to be. And then your wife goes away for a week, whether it's on a business trip or maybe she needs to go back to her home just for a little recovery. God, help me. What am I into? You know, help me, right? And then the moment of truth comes. And what happens is you revert back to your old patterns, right? Pretty soon bags of chip are back on the floor, right? Dishes are starting to stack. Clothes are everywhere. But you know what? Now you don't like it anymore. I liked it when things were the way they were supposed to be. Well, friends, that's in a small way what it's like to be united with Christ. He starts bringing about changes in your life and the old things and all that lust and anger and jealousy and all that gossip, you know what? That doesn't fit anymore. It's not fun anymore. In fact, I don't like it. It's because it's changes that are being brought about in your life. I want you to know that you cannot have forgiveness of sins and take a pass on the new life that is offered and given to us in Christ. You can't do it. Well, let's just talk about this for a little bit. If you kind of look a little bit here, just not so far back in, a, in American Christian history, the whole idea of being a born-again Christian got a lot of press, a lot of discussion about that in the 70s and 80s. A big instigator of this was a guy by the name of Chuck Colson. And he got busted. He was a part of Nixon's inner circle. And when Nixon and the whole Watergate scandal broke loose, this guy, Colson, went to prison, Okay. And while he's in prison, uh, he actually comes and places his faith in Christ, and the guy is genuinely converted to Christ. There had been others that had been talking to him about Christ even before he went to prison, but he actually comes to a place where he truly believes. And he even wrote a book about his experiences, and guess what he titled it? Born Again. Well, all of a sudden there became a division. In fact, the kind of the conversation when people would identify what kind of Christian they were, there were some that identified themselves as born-again Christians, like they had been transformed, they repented of sins, they were believing personally in Christ. And there was a lot of people that said, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-again fanatic Christians. I associate with a particular church, you know, I believe in a general sense, you know, but this whole idea of specific salvation... Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of crazy. That, that's not for me. I'm, I'm not a born-again Christian. There's just one small problem with that dichotomy. It can't exist. Remember what Jesus said, John 3, 3? Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. If you haven't come to a place where you are personally trusting in Christ, you have turned from your sin and you're trusting Christ as your salvation, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You are not one of his. You are still an Adam. And the beauty and the glory of it is that we are alive in Christ and we're a new creature in him. 
And that explains the changes that are taking place in our life. I mean, all of a sudden, things that were coming out of your mouth, ugh, I don't want to talk like that. Behavior, attitudes, how you treated people, your anger issues. You all of a sudden started to get an appetite to read the Bible. Before, the Bible sounded like a very boring book and I'd never want to read it. And now, I want to know God. I want my soul to be fed and so you would actually read the Word. The whole idea, prior to knowing Christ, was anybody really fired up about going to church? Like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea to spend my Sunday mornings when you could be laying in bed or in your lawn chair or doing a hundred other things. Before you knew Christ, going to church is like, I really don't have to. Is it Easter? Why do I have to go? I don't really want to go. But once you placed your faith and trust in Christ, there became a desire to be with God's people, to worship, to learn, to pray, to hear the word, to be together, to fellowship, to encourage one another. Where does all that come from? It comes from the Spirit of God because you're a new creature of in Him. I mean, just look at the changes that God has brought about in your life since you placed your faith in Christ. I mean, let's just take driving, for instance. I mean, when someone cuts you off in traffic, now that you're a believer, whoa, you like, I, I bless you. I am for you, right? I'm praying for you today as you, they literally almost run you into the ditch, right? Isn't that what happens? You wave, you have kind words, nothing but pleasant thoughts. Right? 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 And that, Because remember, before you were a Christian, why, if someone wouldn't let you merge, you just about caused a car wreck. Remember that? And you were so fixed and focused on that. And you had thoughts, and none of them were pleasant. You had words coming out of their mouth, but none of which we would be able to utter. Right? And you had a countenance on your face, but it wasn't joy in Jesus. Right? You were angry and upset. In fact, you even followed that car for the next five minutes, didn't you? Right? Right? But now that's all changed, right? Because now you're the picture of highway holiness. Is that right? No? Well, you're moving in that direction, are you? Well, let me tell you, friends. You're a new creature in Christ. God is bringing about changes. And it's like this. Sin reigns in our lives to the degree that we let it. Sin reigns in our lives to the degree that you let it if you're a Christian. How does God change his people? He identifies us with Christ. He infuses us with the life of Christ. And I want you to see verse 11. He instructs us how to live. Look at verse 11. He says, even so, consider yourselves, think of yourselves, literally, this is how you think of yourselves, to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You think of yourself as dead to whatever sins seem to occupy your life prior to knowing Christ. Outbursts of anger, overindulgence, substance abuse, lying, gossip, overeating, whatever it was, malicious contact, lust on steroids. You're just a, you were just a raging wreck. Guess what? You consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. And this is the first command that we actually find in the book of Romans. And we are told, consider, think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to Christ. It's kind of like, you know how we have our little phones and, and they, they buzz because we got a text coming or like ding, ding, right? We got all these cute little sounds or the phone rings and they, it's like we're getting programmed like, oh, someone's texting me and I got to answer it or the phone's ringing and, I, and I've got to answer it, right? And 
we are dictated by what's happening in this little metal box that we carry around in our pocket. Or if you're really cool, you got a clip, right? Yeah? Let me tell you something. When it comes to the old way of life, it comes to the temptations of the sins, and you know the ones that seem to really call your name, you don't have to answer it. You don't have to respond. You're not a chained elephant. You are alive, and you're a new creature in Christ, and this is what you need to do. When that sin, that temptation comes up, you literally just say this, I am dead to that sin because I'm alive in Christ. Whatever it be, anger, lust, lying, gossip, jealousy, materialism, substance abuse, I am dead to sin because I'm alive in Christ. You're going to find that your life is going to be pretty frustrating. You're going to be like the chained elephant. If you just see yourself as a, just a, I'm a woeful, self-centered sinner, you need to see yourself who you really are. You are an individual who's been united with Christ, and you are to live for the glory of God. Paul didn't tell his readers, I want you to feel like you're a new creature in Christ. He didn't even say you need to fully understand it. What he says is that you believe God's word. It is a matter of faith that leads to action. You know what faith is, don't you? It is taking God at his word. Some of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Augustine, late 4th century, early 5th century, church, early church father, had a, still has a significant influence, especially in Western Christianity. And, you know, just a tremendous man, brilliant mind, godly man, tremendous faith, wrote some really powerful things. But you need to know that prior to coming to Christ, we could pretty much describe his life as, as a moral train wreck. I mean, this guy was out there. He was bad news. And in one particular uh, event that takes place in his life after becoming a Christian, he is walking and he's accosted by a woman. But not just any old woman. This was a woman that he used to live with. It was, it was one of his mistresses. And she recognizes him, and she's grabbing onto his arm, and she says, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And he sees who it is, and she's grabbing, and man, he just feels the pulse and the pull, and he literally walks away, and she goes, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And he turned around, and he's walking away as quickly as possible. He says, I, uh, yes, I know it's you, but it is no longer me. What he's saying is, I am dead to that old way of life. I am dead to sin because you know what? I am alive in Christ. And friends, that is what is true of us. That's how we've got to treat the temptations and the sin of our life. I am dead to sin because I am alive in Christ. A guy by the name of Bruce McIver, he writes of his whole episode of having heart surgery and what that kind of looked like. And Apparently, this doctor, Dr. Dudley Johnson, was pretty terse and very few, a man of few words, okay? And so prior to the uh, open heart surgery on that day before, um, Bruce asked Dr. Johnson, can you fix my heart? Dr. Johnson looks at him, and with one word, he says, sure. And he turns around and walks out of the room. Oh, I guess we're done with that conversation, right? You always want to have your questions ready when you see your doctor, right? And he he leaves. Well, after the uh, 12-hour surgery, after McIver's been revived and he's functioning and he can ask questions, he asked Dr. Johnson, the surgeon, well, in light of the blocked arteries that I had when I checked into the hospital, how much blood supply do I have? Dr. Johnson said, 
well, all that you'll need. And he turns and he leaves. Okay, well, he, they take a little different tactic right before they're released from the hospital. And MacIver's wife, Lawana, she steps in and she asks this question. Well, what about my husband's future quality of life? And Dr. Johnson then just paused for a minute. And he goes, well, this. I fixed his heart, but his quality of life is up to him. And friends, God has given you life in Christ. He's not just fixed your heart. He's given you a new heart. You're a new person in Christ. But you don't have to live like the chained elephant. You got freedom in Christ, freedom to experience his joy, his forgiveness, his peace, and you are now dead to sin because you are alive in Christ. And the gospel reveals that we are dead to sin because we've made, made it alive in Christ. And you don't have to live like you once did. You can now live in the freedom and the joy that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. How you lay it out so crystal clear. that We have been united with Christ. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ. And if there's someone here who's never truly trusted in Christ, but they just simply pray with me and say, God, you know all about me. You know about my self-centeredness and my sin. Right now, I turn from sin in my own way. And I put my trust and my faith in Jesus, who died for me and rose again. And I believe I'm united with him. Lord, lead my life and fill me with your presence. And for all of us, may we walk in the wondrous joy of knowing the living God and knowing that we're dead to sin and alive in Christ for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.